Major Lindsay and Africa presents Bouncing Back, conversations about resilience for lawyers. Welcome to Bouncing Back, Resilience for Lawyers. This podcast is brought to you by Major Lindsay in Africa, the global leader in legal search and consulting. I'm your host, Rebecca Glatzer. I'm a managing director in the associate practice group at Major Lindsay in Africa. In this podcast, I'll speak to successful professionals about the hiccups, bumps, bruises, and setbacks they've experienced in their careers and personal lives and how they ultimately bounce back from those experiences to thrive. Today, my guest is Alexia Korberg. Alexia is a partner in the New York office of Paul Weiss, where they specialize in complex civil litigation. They represent clients in high stakes commercial disputes across a range of industries. Alexia is an experienced trial lawyer, strategist, and and courtroom advocate. They have litigated numerous trials and arbitrations, including several recent high stakes disputes on behalf of private equity firms in the Delaware Court of Chancery. In addition to their robust commercial practice, Alexia has a nationally recognized constitutional impact litigation practice and has litigated several consequential pro bono matters in courts throughout the country. They were part of the legal team that successfully litigated U.S. v. Windsor from the district court to the Supreme Court, hoping to establish a constitutional right to same-sex marriage, as well as a series of cases in Mississippi that invalidated the state's ban on both gay marriage and adoption. Alexia has also authored several Supreme Court amicus briefs, including on behalf of lawyers who have had abortions. Together with co-counsel at the Center for Reproductive Rights, Alexia currently represents Mississippi's last remaining abortion provider in challenges to several unconstitutional abortion restrictions. One of these cases is Dobbs v. Jackson Women's Health Organization, in which they seek to uphold their district court and fifth Fifth Circuit victories in validating Mississippi's ban on abortion after 15 weeks before the Supreme Court. Alexia was named a 2021 Young Lawyer of the Year by the American Lawyer for their nationally prominent work as a tireless defender of women's reproductive rights, LGBTQ plus people, and immigrants. They have been recognized by the New York Law Journal, the New York State Bar Association, Benchmark Litigation, the LGBT Bar, and the American Bar Association for their litigation achievements and commitment to improving the legal profession. Alexia's work has been featured in the New York Times, the Washington Post, the National Law Journal, the American Lawyer, and Slate. Alexia, thank you for being my guest here today. Thank you so much for having me. It's really an honor and a pleasure. Likewise. Well, you told me in a prior conversation about your career that you never thought you'd be a lawyer, and you also said that you never thought you would work for a law firm, which to me is blind, mind-blowing given your meteoric career and the fact that you were an equity partner in one of the largest law firms in the world. So how did this happen? Sure. So, you know, um, I, I it is absolutely true. I would never have predicted that I would be a partner at a large law firm when I was applying to law school, uh, graduating from law school as a junior associate of a large law firm, and maybe even as a mid-level associate at a large law firm. <laughs> um, you know, in fact, when I was in law school, I was so sure that I wouldn't spend any time at a firm that I actually didn't participate in on-campus recruiting. Um, I, just, I just opted out entirely. Such was the force of my confidence and conviction that my career wouldn't look like this. Uh, 
you know, I, I went to law school because I wanted to do LGBTQ rights impact litigation. I, uh, while I was in law school, I interned at the ACLU, the New York Civil Liberties Union, my first summer, uh, and term time at the LGBTQ Rights Project. And then you know, my plan after graduation was to cobble together fellowships until I could be hired as a staff attorney at the ACLU or another impact litigation nonprofit. And one day uh, during the summer between my 1L and 2L years, I was having lunch with one of the most senior attorneys at the ACLU and trying to get his guidance about which LGBTQ organizations to apply to for my 2L summer uh, because I really wanted to work on a challenge to the so-called uh, Defense of Marriage Act, which was a federal law that limited marriage uh, to only one man and one woman. And that senior ACLU attorney told me not to go to any of the nonprofits I was considering, which uh, had already filed Defense of Marriage Act challenges, but instead to go to Paul Weiss, uh, which he had on good authority, was going to be filing a DOMA challenge. And his argument was that I needed the sort of necessary training to actually become a litigator, and that the training resources at a firm like Paul Weiss uh, just totally outstripped anything a nonprofit could provide me. Uh, so, so I did that. I first I had to figure out how to get a job. So uh, I found lawyers from Paul Weiss at the LGBTQ Bar Association conference, which was in Miami that year, I remember, in which I'd gotten funding from my law school to attend. So thank you, uh, Yale Law School, for that. Um, <laughs> And it's a much longer story, uh, but I ultimately figured out how to get hired and how to get a spot on the team litigating what ultimately became United States versus Windsor. Uh, so Paul Weiss was the only law firm I applied to. And then once I was in you know, private law firm land rather than nonprofit land, where I would be trying to avail myself of a loan forgiveness program, I knew that I had to stay at the firm long enough to pay off my loans. Uh, I graduated with as much uh, law school debt or and just school debt as it's remotely possible to have. Uh, <laughs> and my blended interest rate was over 9%. Yeah. Um, yeah so uh, right before I started law school, I had moved my mom out of a uh, pretty bad living situation with my father. So I wasn't just supporting myself through law school, but my mom too. And my mom had cancer, which meant that not only could she not work, but she couldn't get insurance. So I was privately insuring her for, among other things, the treatment of cancer at a time that was pre-Obamacare. So you know, you could be denied coverage for treatment of a pre-existing condition. And in this case, cancer was a pre-existing condition. It was a total nightmare and so expensive. I, to this day, sort of the, the amounts of money sort of boggle my mind. Um, so I actually also had private loans on top of my school loans. Oh my goodness. Um, yeah. And I have to say, you know, for a moment, you know, while that was all hard, I do want to acknowledge the tremendous privilege that I was even able to take out those loans, you know, yes. that people and institutions were willing to lend me money, including a friend when I was uh, about to drop out of law school to pay for some unexpected expenses for my mom. Um, and, you know, while I'm certainly not grateful uh, to have been in that situation, in retrospect, uh, knowing that no matter what, I had to stay at the firm long enough to pay off those loans actually took off some of the pressure that I know myself, my personality, I would have otherwise felt 
about having to figure out my forever job. I didn't need to figure out my forever job. I just had to get through, you know, paying off my loans. And what that meant is that I did stay at the firm long enough to learn how to become a litigator. And I stayed long enough to learn more about what kinds of things bring me joy and satisfaction as a lawyer, you know, because learning how to do any job sucks and learning how to be a lawyer can be particularly painful. Um, and the same goes for being the most junior person at any job, right? Um, and what I learned about myself during that time, uh, which I actually hadn't fully known, even through school and working prior to law school, uh, is just how much I value novelty in my work. Everything from different types of issues, different types of clients, different stages of litigation, trials and appeals, you know, out-of-court advocacy, dispute resolution, et cetera. And if I value novelty as much as I do, it turns out that a large law firm is a uniquely great place for me to be. Um, you know, for example, if I were at an impact litigation nonprofit, I would likely be working on just one issue. Um, and what I learned about Paul Weiss during that time is that the firm is uniquely committed to pro bono work and to impact litigation to try to meaningfully advance the issues that I care the most about, uh, including LGBTQ rights and reproductive rights and immigrant rights. Um, and I learned that not only am I a happier lawyer doing work uh, on existentially important matters for our paying clients alongside high impact constitutional litigation for my pro bono clients, but that I'm a better lawyer for having both practices and that they're really mutually reinforcing. Well, I I am just uh, one personally th thankful that um, that conversation occurred that day with that ACL lawyer because the work you have done has personally impacted myself uh, and my, and my wife and the fact that our marriage is uh, legally recognized and you know all the other wonderful work that you're that you're doing. So um, I'm super happy that you had that conversation <laughs> and this path. Uh, occurred the way that it did, your career occurred the way that it did. There's just so many little nuggets of things uh, that I pulled out of what you just said, Alexia. One thing that just sort of strikes me is this idea of sticking with it, right? You know, if you hadn't taken that other attorney's advice um, and you, you know, you know, sort of extricated yourself from the law at that point, like, oh, this, this path is not what I initially intended. I was going to go work for a nonprofit. And now they're telling me, you know, that I need to go work for a private law firm. And I didn't, you know, participate in OCI. And most of us know, uh, most of us attorneys know that OCI is seen as the one-stop shop where you find jobs as a fledgling attorney. So that could have been sort of punched to the face. Um, and you, and you figured out a way around that. Um, and then stuck with this long enough to figure out what you truly like and dislike, um, and and you and you gave it a chance um, despite any sort of preconceived notions about private law firms or law firms. Um, and so, for me, I, I'm curious about sort of what within you. I mean, you obviously spoke about your mom and that was kind of an impetus for, okay, I need money, I need real money, lots and lots of money to care for her, um, to pay for her insurance, to pay for my student loans. So that was a huge motivator. Um, but it looks like from an outsider looking in that you kept sticking with it and you decided to continue to stay in Paul Weiss. Mm -hmm. And so I'm, I'm interested in, you know, your thoughts on the sticking with it. I mean, obviously again, there's a huge monetary impetus for, for sticking with it, but beyond that, um, I'm just sort of curious about your thoughts on that. And, and even after 
Um, I'm hoping that you paid off your student loans. I'm not, I haven't paid off my student loans, but um, full disclosure, but, you know, I'm hoping it's sort of been a better monetary place at this point in your career. Um, you know, what caused you to continue to stay, um, stick and stay at Paul Weiss? Yeah. yeah, for sure. Yeah. I mean, and I, I encourage folks who do ultimately end up um, spending any time at a big law firm to, you know, if possible, um, obviously sort of, sort of pay off their loans and then, uh, and then check in with themselves because <laughs> that's actually what I did. And I um, it was it was a- astonishing, but true to me um, and that at the point at which I paid off my loans and sort of looked up and realized, OK, now I can sort of do uh, whatever I want, that I had built this practice um, and I had learned so much about myself that Actually, what I realized was staying at Paul Weiss and continuing to have my practice on behalf of both um, certainly my paying and my pro bono clients was the thing that was sort of going to give me the most uh, joy and fulfillment. And, you know, as I said, sort of being being a junior lawyer is really hard. Being junior at any job is actually uh, really hard. Uh, because, you know, one, you know, learning is difficult. <laughs> it involves repeatedly failing, which we're conditioned to experience as painful. You know, there were lots of times being a junior lawyer was either boring or terrifying or both. Um, and and so, you know, for me, knowing that I wasn't going to leave sort of allowed me to get past all of that. I just had to st- I had to learn how to be a lawyer. I had to sort of stick with that. And at the point at which I, I picked my head up and realized, oh, I'm I'm a lawyer now. I, I know how to do this. And I could do sort of all sorts of different types of things now. Um, that knowledge had allowed me to sort of realize the parts of my job, not only that I really enjoyed at Paul Weiss, but like maybe weren't as replicable elsewhere. Right. You know, for yes. example, for example, I, as I said, I, I really did not know. It's funny, I, I, I had I worked prior to law school and then I went to law school and I really thought I had myself figured out. And I get I didn't know how much for just me personally, the way my mind works, the, the way um, I feel sort of satisfied in a given day or a week or a month, how much of that de- was dependent on doing different types of things. Yes. in a way that, you know, is really uniquely possible uh, at a law firm. And, you know, I it, it's, it's interesting, too, you know, you, you referred earlier to sort of the, the impact of the Windsor case and decision in your own life. And, you know, as a queer person uh, who is uh, who, who at, certainly at the time that I uh, was married, my, my marriage qualified as a, as a same-sex uh, marriage by, you know, D- Doma would have prevented it. Um, and actually, as someone who's also trans and gender nonconforming, I live so much of my work. And having that experience actually also showed me the value for me of having that work be a really meaningful part of my career, but not all of my career. That for me, there's, I derive a lot of um, sort of emotional benefit from having these issues that 
are really tethered to both my identity and in the cases of abortion access, sort of my sense of what I want the world to look like. And also having cases where, you know, really sort of the the issue is is certainly important and there's a big sort of maybe um, amount of money at stake, but uh, don't have the same sort of profound uh, impact in some ways or, um, you know, sense of risk to my my own safety um, or the safety of sort of the the country as I want it to look like. And for me, it's really wonderful to do both. I'm, I'm truly better at both um, because emotionally I get to do both. Yes. No, that makes a lot of sense to me. It's like you get a emotional reprieve, perhaps, maybe is a way of putting it. Yeah. When you're doing things on behalf of paying clients because while it impacts you professionally, it may not impact you personally. And then the opposite is true. You get to do something that you're really passionate about for, you know, a period of time um, and hope to make an impact. And certainly with the Windsor case and, um, you know, other things that you've done actually do make an impact and making a lasting impact. So that makes a lot of sense to me. For our listening audience, you you made a verbal nod to this, Alexia. Um, you are uh, you 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 are trans, and you recently uh, in 2021 came out as trans in an opinion piece in the Washington Post. And to both of our knowledge, uh, you are the only out trans equity partner at an AM law firm. And uh, please note to our listening audience, if we are wrong about that, I would like to know. Alexia, Alexia, I, I would also like to know. Like to know. Yeah, if, if, she, if, sure. if they are not the if they are not the uh, only one, then we would like to know. Um, please contact us. I need, I need a friend. <laughs> that's right. That's right. Exactly. Strength in numbers here. But I'm curious about what led you uh, to writing that op-ed. Yeah. So that op-ed, um, you know, in some ways, I uh, my coming out as trans in the op-ed was sort of incidental. Um, and and though though certainly uh, deliberate on my part, it was it was not it was not accidental. But um, my transness was uh, incidental to the at least uh, primary purpose of the op-ed, which was uh, about uh, SB8, which is the Texas abortion law uh, that uh, was passed uh, this past summer and uh, was allowed by the Supreme Court to go into effect uh, at the end of summer, where that allows, um, well, first of all, bans abortions at uh, six weeks gestational, which uh, is just uh, facially, patently, wildly unconstitutional. Um, And for its sort of enforcement mechanism, instead of leaving it up to, uh, you know, members or actors from the government to enforce the law, as all laws are enforced, uh, actually sort of deputizes regular people um, to go out and report and file suit against anyone suspected of either availing themselves of their constitutional right to an abortion or aiding and abetting anyone doing so, which can be defined as broadly as, uh, you know, driving the taxi. Um, on the way to the clinic. And there was uh, really a lot of 
sort of hand-wringing consternation and, and commentary about how unprecedented the law was. And, you know, I actually knew that it wasn't unprecedented. It was uh, actually uh, prototyped uh, five years before in Mississippi, uh, a law HB 1523, that uh, was actually an anti-trans and anti-LGBTQ law that uh, was also written specifically to uh, to thwart standing, which is you know the mechanism by which uh, you know we sort of allow parties to come to court and and have have the ability to sue. Um, so while litigating that uh, a challenge to that case five years before, um, we actually ultimately lost on standing grounds. And the reason, uh, you know, first, I think it's, it's quite clear sort of intellectually that that, that first law was um, the, the precursor to Texas SB 8. But lest there be any doubt, Jonathan Mitchell, the architect of the Texas law, uh, was also the same person who was the architect of this of, of this Mississippi law and argued that case in the Fifth Circuit. Um, and the Supreme Court denied cert to review it. So um, one, I just wanted to say hey, this isn't at all unprecedented. And it really um, just speaks to the way in which we really ignore uh, trans rights and trans lives to uh, to say that that this hasn't happened before. Um, and two, to um, just sort of talk about and try to foster empathy in others about what the experience of living under a regime like that is. So, you know, I I don't live in Mississippi, uh, but I uh, I go to Mississippi on behalf of various clients. I've litigated LGBTQ rights cases in Mississippi. I represent uh, the last uh, abortion clinic in Mississippi. And because we were unsuccessful challenging that law, because it was designed to thwart standing and make it so that we couldn't sue, that law is in effect in Mississippi. And I, as a, you know, visibly sort of gender non-conforming person, I, I look both uh, and neither like a, like a man, <laughs> and a man, I would say, yep. when I go to Mississippi, I am keenly aware that that law is on the books and it's really deputizing sort of anyone around me, giving them not just license, but invitation to discriminate against me, to harass me, to uh, kick me out of the bathroom. Uh, and to be clear, I have been forcibly physically removed from bathrooms, even in New York City. So trans, anti-trans, uh, you know, violence and rhetoric, et cetera, is, um, you know, is certainly not unique to Mississippi. But I know what it's like to, to live sort of knowing that uh, the state has really made uh, everyone around you has deputized them to sort of come after you and to try to police how you look. And that the real effect of living under a regime like that is that you, you're, the purpose is to sort of force us to police ourselves, right? To say, well, I'm in, in Texas. I'm not going to have an abortion because if I do, then um, I'm going to be sued. Or, you know, for me to say, well, maybe I'm not going to um, go to the bathroom at all because I might be kicked out or maybe I should change my hair or this or that. And how, you know, it is no coincidence that this 
really this totally unprecedented law um, that we have never, the likes of which we've never seen before in this country, that it was prototyped on trans people and now is being used uh, to try to control the, the gestating bodies, right? It's Both laws are really founded on this idea of uh, controlling gender, how we perform gender, and the notion that, you know, femininity, that womanhood is, is, is looking feminine, it is uh, dressing for a male gaze, it is uh, having children, it is giving birth. Um, and in order to explain what it would be like to live under such a regime, um, you know, sort of before the law went into, I wrote at the time, uh, before the law had gone into effect in Texas, it, it was sort of necessary for me to also point out that I myself am, am trans. Uh, but I have to say it was also, you know, a, uh, it was efficient. <laughs> yeah, indeed, my friend, indeed. I was like thinking about, I was like, man, maybe I should have done that. <laughs> just, yeah. just, just, just get her done. It's, exactly. it's on a national scale <laughs> or a world exactly. scale. <laughs> <laughs> Never mind the one-on-one -on -one conversations. Like, forget, throw that out the window. <laughs> so, so yeah, hat tip for being efficient. Um, any sort of, you know, blowback uh, on the part of family and friends or people that you actually care about? Hmm. <laughs> <laughs> That's a good question. Uh, not that I know of. Um, it, Good. I think that there are folks who, you know, had reactions that uh, were not perhaps sort of worded perfectly, uh, but I imagine would have had those reactions sort of regardless. And, you know, it's actually an interesting thing, even the notion that I was coming out as trans, because, you know, like I said, I, I, I appear, my appearance is so gender non-conforming and it really has been for such a long time. And, you know, I sort of even grappled myself with the concept of, you know, am I coming? I've, I've always been trans. I, I knew that I was not a girl the, from that my absolute earliest days. And I acquired language. And the first thing that I said was that I was not a girl. And uh, I was consistent and insisted that that was the case, you know, really up until it had become been made clear to me by um, by people in my life that 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 wasn't OK. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, it's interesting. There are ways in which, you know, what, what does it mean to come out as trans if I have I've always been trans. But, you know, it was I was certainly putting a word uh that that means a certain thing to certain to certain folks um, out there and talking about my identity. And, you know, it really uh, it was it was deliberate. And I think it's important for me to make clear that I am trans because, you know, for folks, for folks who know me to, to understand that this is what being trans can look like, too. Right. Being trans can mean all sorts of different things. Um, and, you know, you almost certainly love someone who is trans, whether they are visibly trans in the way that I always was, uh, or closeted uh, in the way that I was entirely, including, um, you know, in terms of my gender, my outward gender expression, as I was closeted for a lot of my life. And, 
you know, I think just, just, I believe just across the board <laughs> that empathy is the absolute uh, most powerful agent for change and is the most powerful thing um, that any of us can exercise to be better humans in the world. And uh, I think that when folks actually do the work of empathy, their feelings about the rights that other folks have that aren't them change. When you imagine what it would be like, truly imagine to not be able to uh, marry and make a, you know, make a family with like the person that you love, your, your opinion changes. I, I saw that in my own family um, with folks who were, you know, really opposed to, for example, marriage equality until they came to realize that they already knew and loved someone uh, who was being discriminated against. Yeah, yeah, it's it's uh, God's work in my in my mind, and it's difficult work and it's slow work um, because you have to change hearts and minds one at a time. Um, for the listening audience, uh, I dress in and appear in a somewhat gender non-conforming way myself. And I have been called sir in airports and things like that, which is fascinating to me in all kinds of different ways. But um, I have never been physically thrown out of a bathroom um, hmm. or told in an irate way to leave, which I find appalling and it enrages me. But it also strikes fear in my heart um, just to sort of envision the experiences that you've had in Mississippi and elsewhere. Um, and it strikes me that it takes an incredible amount of resilience to deal with that sort of imminent you know, physical threat to person and life and continue to do this work. And, you know, everything you've said, Alexia, has pointed to your resilience over the last 30 minutes or so. Um, but I'm particularly struck about your resilience in the face of that physical an actual real threat to be able to continue to do this work and to represent your clients in Mississippi and elsewhere. And I'm wondering where that resilience comes from. Yeah, you know, I, um, I would say that I, I learned resilience uh, the easiest and the hardest way, which is by going through a lot of really bad and difficult things uh, in my childhood and adult life, uh, totally separate and apart from uh, the uh, the difficulties of being trans in a world uh, that is working very hard uh, to uh, erase <laughs> erase transness. Um, but as a result of those experiences, I know. I mean, I know in my bones <laughs> that I can get through anything. Um, and you know, now, uh, especially as I'm, as I am I'm a parent, I've become much more interested in how you get resilient without enduring trauma, right? Mm -hmm. Because I would really, really like my daughter to be resilient without having to withstand, you know, one one hundredth of, of what I have. Um, and from my perspective and, and the, the times that I know that I am the most resilient, uh, one of the keys to resilience is knowing that not only can I not control the future, but it's sort of better that I can't because we can't know in any moment and in any stage of our life what would actually make us happier at another stage. 
Um, and so I think it's it's in part sort of being open, um, knowing what your non-negotiables are. And at this point in my life, uh, being me, being the most authentic version of myself that I can be is sort of the non-negotiable. And then trying to sort of figure out the rest. Um, and, you know, I think sort of the the greatest sign of, of immaturity and the greatest predictor of not being able to be resilient is being certain that you have yourself or your life or anyone else's life figured out. Um, you know, it's the... It's, it's thinking back even to law school me, right? And how certain I was about my own career. Like all I can think is like that person was really smug, you know? <laughs> um, and uh, yeah, you know, I think, um, I think an another key to resilience is knowing that bad things will happen to you. Um, knowing that everyone gets a different portion of bad things, but we all get some. And for me, at least it's helpful to keep in mind because it makes like the bad things that happen to to me less shocking and someone who is shocked or stunned by what's happening to them or caught up in the unfairness of it relative to someone else who didn't have that particular bad thing happen to them can't really begin to figure out how to get through um knowing that bad things will happen also frees uh me at least from sort of an expectation expectation of perfection which only you know produces anxiety in me. So um, I know that in my own life, I'm a whole lot braver and more effective when I can force myself to be less invested in any particular outcome. Um, and you know, that's a I'm a work in progress on that, right? I mean, as I as I said to you, um, I knew. I mean, I wrote it down. I said it. I shouted it from the rooftops. I knew that I was not a girl from. Uh, from 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 absolutely inception, before I knew and understood, you know, my name, my other parts of my personality, certainly my my orientation, and yet, I mean, it's I was uh, let's see, I was 38, I was 30, no, 37 when I came out as trans to a lot of people in my life, right, in that in that Washington Post piece, so. Um, I'm working on it. <laughs> it is not, um, you know, I think there's sometimes this narrative with certainly with transness, but a lot of things with 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 coming out as as otherwise queer, where we uh, we have sort of put so much emphasis on the coming out. It's as if there's something wrong with not being out. And I also have a lot of grace for uh, the version of myself that despite all of my various privileges, including and especially my whiteness, uh, was too scared to come out to a lot of people um, for the vast majority of my life, despite my certainty for it. So I think that too goes, you know, to the to the grace of not having any, um, not being not being sure of 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 anything, and sort of not judging, hopefully anyone, but least of all yourself. Right, having a lot of grace for yourself. Yeah, I think I think that's. That's great, great advice. Um, I, I amen to all of that. Well, it, I, I've gotten so much out of speaking with you, Alexia. I, 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 there's just so many incredible nuggets uh, in, in here. And I know that 
our listening audience is going to get a lot out of this um, too. I sincerely appreciate you uh, giving me your time and giving me so much of yourself and our listening audience so much of yourself today. Um, I know that they will find them valuable and I sincerely appreciate your time. Thanks so much. I've really enjoyed our conversation. Absolutely. Thank you for listening to Bouncing Back, Resilience for Lawyers. Join us next time for another story about thriving after overcoming challenges. You can find Bouncing Back and other programming for lawyers on MLA's Legal Talk Network.